0: We're starting a very uh, brand new series today, and I chose that video intentionally, because does anybody in here have stuff from your past? I'm just going to wait until everybody raises their hand. All right, we all got stuff, right? That's what that video said. Now, when we're talking about alter ego, we are spelling it intentionally, A-L-T-A-R, not alter ego with an E like Clark Kent, as if he fooled anybody with his glasses, you know, and when he was working at the newspaper. Or um, not like Spider-Man. At least Spider-Man had a mask, you know, it's more believable that people wouldn't know who he was. But that's an alter ego when you have to hide who you are. We're talking about alter ego as in coming to God, because in the Old Testament they had altars, and here's just one um one symbol. Go ahead and put that up there if you would. Is it on there, Gary? This is, this is a rendition of what an altar may have looked like. And they would bring the, the, the true believers in God would come to the altar to offer something to God. And so in this instance, they would offer a sin offering. You see the lamb there? They would bring it, and the blood of the lamb, the innocent lamb, would cover the sins of the person who brought the lamb. And so they would walk away from the altar in right standing with God because the blood had covered their sin. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus becomes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The reason we don't offer an animal is because Jesus once for all sacrificed for sins. And so his blood... The, the blood of an innocent third party has to cover your sins or you are not in right standing with God. So they might come to God and they offer a sin offering. They could also offer a thanksgiving offering. They could also offer uh, something from their, from their crops. One of my favorites is called a wave offering. Where like they would they would harvest some wheat and they would come before God, and it literally they would wave it before God to say, "This came from you. I just love the idea of saying, "God, everything we have is yours, and then offering that to God in the New Testament. it also says in hebrews 13 fifteen it says, um, "We bring the sacrifice of praise, and so what I want to ask you today is when you praise God, does it cost you anything um, if you've never tried to sing in, a, in an acoustic set, you need to give John Colander a hand today because it's very difficult to lead. Go ahead. Yeah. Because it's very very difficult to lead an acoustic set. We we need you to help us out. So we just have to we have to whether you're singing or not, whether you like the songs or not, you like the arrangement or not, we have to just offer that to God. So what does your What does your praise cost you? If it costs you nothing, I don't believe you've really worshipped. You have to offer something to God. And so that's why we're calling this alter ego. We want to lay down what we think of ourselves at the altar of God. Pick up what God says about us and walk away with his identity, not our identity. So just some of the things we're going to lay down at the altar of God over the course of this series is feelings of inadequacy, uh, the need for control, the right to be offended, our longing for approval and friendship with the world. All right, so now I'm giving you a heads up. Everybody should raise their hands. How many of you have ever had feelings of inadequacy? All right, I think most of you. You look at your finances and you go, I don't care who you are, that's not enough. Right, your finances aren't enough. Anyone? Or have you ever gone to somebody's house? Your house was fine until you went to somebody else's house and it's awesome. And suddenly you go back home, your house isn't enough anymore. Or you go to a friend's house and it's clean and it smells good. And you go back to your house, and you goes, my house stinks. I mean, literally it smells and it's lived in, right? Anybody done that? Ladies, have you ever seen someone that they're always perfect? Their hair's perfect. Their makeup's per- perfect. Their outfit is perfect. And you're just like, I'm not like that. I didn't even know what the word frumpy meant until I got married. And Janie, one time she said, does this outfit make me look frumpy? And I mean, I've been around long enough to, to not answer a question that I don't know the answer to. And I said, what does that mean? And so she's explained it to me. And so we have safe words. I've learned this from my wife through the years. If an outfit makes her look frumpy, I'm supposed to say, it's not my favorite. Those are safe words. And she'll go change, because I'm like, what do you want from me? Frumpy is not a word, but it is a word. Or have you ever gone to church, and you see the super Christian? Now, by the way, there is no such thing as this, right? No such thing as a super Christian, except Jesus, and none of us are Jesus, right? So none of us are super Christian, but you go into a Bible study, you go into something, and and, uh, you mention something that's going on in your life, and they say, That reminds me of the time in Habakkuk 3, because this is what super Christians sound like. The time in Habakkuk chapter 3, when the prophet prayed, Lord, we have heard of your fame. This is happening in your life, so that the fame of God can be made known throughout the ages. Maybe you haven't, but I've been there. Because I was thinking, what? Who's Habakkuk? How do you spell it? And when did you hear him pray? That's what I'm thinking. Speaking of prayer, have you ever been around Christians and one of them prays and you're just like, "Wow, you're God's favorite, no doubt about it. You are His favorite, teacher's pet." And then they ask you to pray and you're like, oh, you freeze and you're like, "God is great, God is good, oh, and I'll lay me down to sleep if I should die before I wake. Let us take him for the food. Amen." Right? And you're going, "Man, I I suck as a prayer." Right? You, okay. Even arrogant people are, are overcompensating for their insecurities, their feelings of inadequacy. And so, why do you think we struggle with these? Well, I'm going to give you. There's a whole bunch of reasons why we struggle struggle with feelings of inadequacy, but I'm going to give you just three. Uh, number one is unfair c- criticism. Somewhere in your life, somebody said to you some mean things. And you internalize those mean things. They said, you don't measure up. They they said, I don't like you. They say, I wish I'd never had you. You'll never amount to anything. And you believed them. And now anytime you want to try something in your life, you replay those messages over and over that say, I'm not good enough. I'm not capable. So unfair criticism. Number two, unrealistic compliments. This one is, no one's as good as you. I mean, come on. We used to watch American Idol. We don't watch it anymore. But who told some of those people they could sing? It was somebody who was an idiot, right? Because when they start singing, you're going, ah, the dogs in your backyard are howling. And they're just thinking they're so good because somebody said, you're the best, baby. You can sing. (laughs) We've got a couple of generations that have been told, you're the best at everything. Here's a trophy. What's it for? Oh, just make it up. Back in the day, you had to win something to get a trophy. Um, we, in our men's study on Tuesday nights, we've been, we've been looking at the things that our children need, and so we talked about the father wound, and, and here's what your kids need. Your kids don't need. You're good at everything. Your kids need from the father. We'll talk about the mother another time. From the father, I love you. I'm proud of you. You're good at something specific. Not everything, because you're not good at everything, because the kid instinctively knows You're telling me I'm up here, but I know the truth, and I'm down here. And so you have this whole generation that lives in fear of trying anything because they know they're not good enough. They know they're not the top, but everybody's been telling them they're at the top. (laughs) Back in the day, you had to finish 12 grades of school before you graduate. Now you graduate kindergarten. That's so good. You graduate kindergarten. Let's get a cap and gown and spend hundreds of dollars. The only people that benefit from that are the people who make caps and gowns. Right? You're so good. I remember getting out of kindergarten. I was thinking. I remember thinking I was done, and Mom goes, "Oh no, baby, you got to go to first grade." And so I, I'm, I'm not making this up. I remember getting my six weeks report card from first grade, and I passed. And I'm dancing around in the in the driveway. I passed. I passed. I'm done. And Mom's like, "No, baby, you're just getting started. You got twelve more years." And I was like, oh, "I don't want to do this." People feel inadequate because they haven't had their parents say, I love you, I'm proud of you, you're good at this. Right? Specifics. This may be the biggest reason why we have feelings of inadequacy. It's unwise comparisons. Does anybody doubt that social media is the greatest cause of feelings of inadequacy in our our time? I mean, the teenagers know it. Because... You'll upload, and I don't know why you upload all these things. I don't upload anything except my family and church stuff. That's all I ever do. But somebody will upload a picture of their peanut butter and jelly sandwich that they had for dinner. Mmm, I love me some peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And then you scroll through your news feed, and you see your best friend, and she's in Hawaii, she's having lobster, and she's got her magnificent engagement ring. And all of a sudden, my peanut butter and jelly sandwich ain't enough anymore. Because she's got that. Stephen Furtick says that we compare others' highlights with our behind the scenes. Right? What you're seeing on Facebook, that's not everything. That's not the real deal. You may not see the 100 pictures they took to get the lighting just right. We're comparing our behind the scenes with their highlight reels. So the point is, if you've ever experienced feelings of inadequacy, you need to hear the word of God today. And we're going to look at the story of Gideon. It's in the book of Judges. And if you want to follow along, it's in Judges chapter 6. And we're going to, we're going to read from that. And here's what I want you to see. Okay. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah. she has been around a long time. Old Testament times. You didn't know that, did you? That's spelled differently. It's just talking about a place. Now, let's look at the angel of the Lord. In the Old Testament, you need to understand... The difference between the Angel of the Lord and an angel of the Lord anytime you see the angel of the Lord it is a it is a special individual and and if you study all of this you'll see it is either it is either God appearing in human form God himself that's called a um, a theophany or. What I believe is it's a pre-incarnate, so that means before the New Testament, it's an appearance of Jesus. If Jesus always existed, if everything was created through him, he could, he could appear in human form to not freak out whoever he was talking to. So the angel of the Lord is either a theophany, God, appearing in human form, or it's a Christophany, Jesus Christ, appearing before the New Testament. So here's how we know this. You'll, you'll see this in a second. When the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah, that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite. So I love all of the details in Scripture. Right, The people who lived then could go and find all of these things. Where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, a threshing floor was usually put up on a hill And they would take the wheat, they would throw it up in the air. They'd have a shovel, and they'd throw it up in the air. All of the chaff, the the stuff that is worthless, would blow away in the wind. And all that would fall down was the heavier wheat, the good stuff. So normally you'd be on top of a mountain, but Gideon is in a wine press. He's hiding from the Midianites because he's terrified of these big bullies because they're going to come and steal his lunch money. This is a remarkable scene, and it's a case study in feelings of inadequacy where the angel of the Lord appears to someone. Verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, "The Lord is with you." And I want you to say this with this with me: the, the yellow words, "The Lord is with you, mighty. mighty warrior." Let's try that again: "The Lord is with you, mighty. mighty warrior." And I've told you this before. I think that he's hiding in the winepress threshing wheat, and he's looking around. Where? Where's the mighty warrior? Because uh, because you know, if we were there, we wouldn't say "mighty warrior." We'd be going, "Hey, the Lord's with you, you big wuss! Get out of the winepress." Stand up and be a man, but that's not what God did. God saw something in him that he didn't see in himself. Now, I want you to notice how he responds. He does not know that he's talking to the Lord, the capital L. He thinks he's talking to just an individual, and he calls him Lord with a lowercase l. Pardon me, my Lord. There's the the, the lowercase l, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, where is it? There we go. Pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, but if the Lord, capital L, is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord, capital L, bring us up out of Egypt? But now the capital L Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, And again, in fairness to to Gideon, he didn't know he was talking to God. And in fairness to Gideon, the Lord had abandoned them. If you read the, the book of Judges, one of the, the worst things it says is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're told that as long as the elders who outlived Joshua, so they, they followed God when Joshua was alive. Joshua, Joshua dies. All of the elders that, that had been with Joshua, as long as the Israelites were under their leadership, they followed the Lord. But as soon as they died, a generation later, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and God turned them over to other people. Because God says... I'm not going to casually date you. I am Lord or I'm not. If you turn your back on me, I will turn my back on you. So he had abandoned him. But now, <laughs> the angel of the Lord is there and Gideon doesn't even know it. So look what happens. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not with you? Am I not with you? Um, I lost my place. Am I not sending you? Sorry. Who is speaking here? Who is saying, am I not sending you? The Lord, the angel of the Lord. It's the pre-incarnate Jesus. When you do not know to whom you are speaking, it is very easy to believe lies. And here's why. The enemy, that's the next slide. The enemy will tell you, they're not on there? The enemy will tell you what you are not, and your inner me will repeat that message until you believe it. Let's do that again. The enemy of God, the enemy of God's people will will tell you what you're not and your inner me will repeat that until you believe it unless you know Isaiah 26.3. How many of you know Isaiah 26.3? It's one of my memory verses. Here's what it says. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. All right, so y'all know I'm weird, right? No doubt, okay. Okay. So here's how I memorize this verse. I'm going to teach you how, and hopefully you'll remember it today. All right? You will keep in perfect peace. So you're going to repeat after me. In in cadence. i got two drummers out here, so you all help them stay in cadence. You will keep in perfect peace. That was terrible. You will keep in perfect peace. There you go. Let's do it again. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you. Let's try that again. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you. All whose thoughts are fixed on you. You non-drummers over here? Okay, so let me, let me do the whole thing. Don't, don't help me. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you. All whose thoughts are fixed on you. Can y'all do that? Or is that too much? I'll do it one more time for you and then you're going to do it. All right. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. That's not that hard. I'm going to do this in children's ministry when we go and do mission trips, right? Okay. So, so let's let's show that we can do this. All right. Here we go. I'll say it and then you say it. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you. All whose thoughts are fixed on you. Y'all suck. Um, that's right. The whole reason I did that was just so that when something happens to you this week and it's really, really difficult, I want you to think about are my thoughts fixed on me or are my thoughts fixed on you? Because what kind of peace does it say? What kind of peace does it say? Perfect. That means if my heart is not in perfect peace, I am not looking at the Lord. Are you with me? You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you all whose thoughts are fixed on you so that means if you have a thought come in your mind that's from the enemy you need to replace it with the thought that's from the Lord does this make sense perfect peace you want perfect peace replace those thoughts now Gideon didn't know this verse because it hadn't been written yet but it explains my point where was Gideon looking was he looking at the angel of the Lord who's speaking to him or was he looking at the big bad Midianites Whenever you're overwhelmed, are you looking at the Lord or are you looking at your problems? Yes. So we, we, without meaning to, we bow down to our problems. You are number one in my life. Not the Lord who gives perfect peace, but my problems are number one in my life. Gideon's looking at these big bad guys and he says, I'm a hide because I don't want to do all this work for the bully to come steal my food. And the Lord is speaking to him. He doesn't even realize it yet. I think many of you, the Lord has shown up to you and he's spoken to you and you didn't even recognize him. Because you're bowing down to the enemy and your inner me voice that says you can't do this. You're not good enough. Who told Gideon? Well, let's look at this. Here's what he says. Pardon me, my Lord. So he's still got the lowercase l. Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So Manasseh is the tribe that he's a part of, and he says, not only are we the weakest tribe, I'm the weakest of the weak. Who told him he was the weakest of the weak? Was it the angel of the Lord, or was it the enemy of God? Was it the angel of the Lord, or the enemy of God? It's the enemy of God. My question is, who told you you couldn't do it? Who told you that You weren't good enough. You weren't smart enough. Who told you that you don't know enough of the Bible? Who's screaming in your mind? Divorced, abused, not talented. Is it the angel of the Lord or is it the enemy of God? It's the enemy. And we give in and we replay those voices saying, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. We, We agree with the accuser of God's people. That's what God called Satan, the enemy, the accuser of God's people. We don't agree with what God says about us. We agree with what the enemy of God says. Look what happens in verse 11. Or actually, it's later in verse. It starts in verse 11. The Lord answered, I will be with you. That's all he needed to say. I will be with you. He could stop the message there, and that's enough. But look what he says after that. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Today, what I want to challenge you to do is lay down your ego... At the altar of God. Because if God is with you, it doesn't matter what he says, tells you to do afterwards. If God is with you, you are... In, you can never be inadequate if God is with you. If God is with you, your past doesn't define you. But you have to exchange what the enemy says, what you've believed. You have to exchange it for what God says. So, three things I want you to know about you today and walk away from this message. Number one, God's view of you is different than you think. Back to verse 12. When the angel of the Lord shows up, where is Gideon? When the angel of the Lord comes, where is he? Hiding, and why is he hiding? Because he's scared, because he's afraid. If you know anything about the scripture, does the spirit of fear come from God? In 1 Timothy it says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. If I'm afraid, I'm not looking at God. Does the spirit of fear come from God? No. With God on the scene, Gideon is not a loser. He's not a wimp. He's not a scaredy cat. God shows up in human form and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. What made him a mighty warrior? God. It was the presence of God. What makes you a mighty warrior? Whether you're a man or woman of God. It doesn't matter if you're man or woman. What makes you mighty is God in the the equation. Have you, how many of you, let's just, let's go back to this. How many of you have ever been told you're not good enough and your inner voice has said, you're right, I'm not. Anyone? You've ever had that inner voice? Yes. (laughs) God's view is different than you think. In the New Testament, in in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he starts naming some, some really bad sins. You know, we categorize them. Well, these are the worst of the worst sins. And he said, Such were some of you. You used to be that. But then God made you alive and he transformed you. And then he says this in verse 10 For we are God's masterpiece. Whose masterpiece? Whose masterpiece? We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I don't think you realize that before you were born, God had a to-do list just for you, a heavenly to-do list. God gave you life in your mother's womb and then when you surrendered, when you bowed before him and asked him to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, he made you alive, he gave you a spiritual gift and then he gave you a heavenly to-do list and he's given you everything you need to do his to-do list, not your to-do list and the reason there's conflict in your life between you and God is because you're trying to do your to-do list and not God's to-do list. Your to-do list is temporary. God's to-do list is eternal and he's not interested in doing temporary things. He wants to do eternal things. God's view of you is different than you think. I'll give you just a couple of examples. When everybody else in the Old Testament looked at Rahab, what did they see? One name, her occupation, what is it? Prostitute. Casey and I were talking about this in men's group Tuesday night, and both of us grew up on the, on the King James, and so... I said, Rahab the... And Casey and I looked at each other and said, harlot, because that's what the King James says. Everybody else said prostitute. Almost every time, it's not every time, almost every time that Rahab is mentioned in the scriptures, it is Rahab the prostitute. The Bible does not try to cover up what she used to do for a living. It's as if God wants us to remember There was a woman in the Old Testament who was a prostitute. That's how she made her money, her occupation. God wants us to remember. Why would God want us to remember? Why would God repeat? Because if you look, there's at least three times that it says Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute. He keeps saying Rahab the prostitute. Why would God do that? I think He wants us to remember that your past does not define your future, just like Rahab's past did not define her future. God saves those with a past. And then I need to add these words. Only those with a past. Right? There's no none righteous, is what it says in Romans. Not a single one of us is righteous. Even our best efforts are like filthy rags. God only saves those with the past. God uses those with a past, and we're going to use those same words. Only those with a past. And God, this is my favorite, redefines those with a past. Only those with a past. Because you know what? When everybody else saw Rahab the prostitute, what did God see? God saw a woman whose heart was going to be turned towards him, who would one day marry a godly man named Salmon, who would become the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, don't you ever tell me that you've done something so bad that God cannot use you. If God can change and redefine Rahab the prostitute to the great, 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 I don't even know how many greats, grandmother of Jesus Christ, you got to be real careful saying something about yourself that God doesn't say about you. When others looked at David, you remember the story of David when he was a boy, he was a shepherd. We know that. Saul was king. God rejected Saul as king. God was going to anoint a new king. So he sends Samuel, the prophet, to to Jesse's house. He said, go to Bethlehem. And if you know the story of Bethlehem, that's where Jesus was born. Um, But he he says, go to Bethlehem and anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. So Samuel shows up. And everybody's afraid because when, this, when the prophet came, you were afraid because he was about to pronounce judgment, right? So he comes in and he says to Jesse, you don't have to be worried. I'm here to anoint the next king. Where are your sons? So Jesse has eight sons. Seven of them are around. So he brings the first one in. And the prophet looks and says, surely this is the king because he was, he was a magnificent human specimen. Good looking, rugged. He was strong. And God says, oh, no, don't, don't you anoint him. I've rejected him. He said, God does not look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And so seven sons they bring before him, and, and God says no. And so Samuel's confused, and he looks at the dad, and he goes, Is this all you got? And dad says, Well, there's one more, but he's a boy. And he's out tending sheep. And Jesse said, or Samuel said, Get him. We're not, we're not doing anything else until I see this young man. When he walks in, God says, This is the man. Everybody else saw a boy. God saw someone who was going to stand up to Goliath as a boy. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you know that David screwed up when he was king. the time when kings go out to war, he's walking around the top of his his castle. He looks down, he sees Bathsheba. He commits adultery. He, he schemes to have her husband come home and try to, when she finds out she's got her pregnant, to try to make it look like the, da- the husband got her pregnant and, and God wasn't having any of that. And so he eventually kills Uriah the Hittite, who was the husband of Bathsheba, just so he could marry Bathsheba so he could have this child. Several months later, the prophet Nathan comes up to David and, and see, here's the problem the king, anointed by God, Committed adultery in a way that everybody knew. Everybody found out about the murder. Everybody found out he'd gotten Bathsheba pregnant. And God says, you have defamed my name in front of the people. So he sends prophet Nathan to him and he tells this story. And he says, this guy had lots of sheep. This other one had one sheep. He stole the one sheep and sacrificed it. And David said, that man should die. And Nathan says, you are the man. Now, everybody in Israel at this point saw the king doing what he thought he could do. And they saw him as an adulterer. They saw him as a murderer. What did God see? The moment Nathan confronted him, David, the king who could have killed the prophet, said, I have sinned. He wrote some of the greatest psalms after God restored him. And now we look back at David as the greatest king in the history of Israel. When everybody else saw an adulterer, when everybody else saw a murderer, God saw one who would be restored and would write the 23rd Psalm, the 51st Psalm, which says to cleanse me. Give me a pure heart. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me, God. God sees something different in you than you see in yourself. In the New Testament, there was a guy named Simon, chosen by Jesus to be one of his disciples. You remember Simon? Loud mouth, hot head, foot-in-mouth disease. He's the guy who would shoot and then aim, right, type guy. What did Jesus see? Jesus saw a rock, renamed him Rock Man. Jesus saw the guy who would stand up at the day of Pentecost and be the preacher, who would preach in such a way that 3,000 people would give their heart and their life to Jesus. No one saw Peter becoming the Rock Man except Jesus Christ. So I don't care what you see. In yourself or what others say they see in you, God sees more in you than you see in yourself. He sees what you can become. Second thing of the three things you need to know about you, God has given you more than you think. In verse 14, does God say, go to seminary and learn how to fight? Did he say that to David? Did he tell the disciples, you know, you, you, need, to, uh, you need to fast for 21 days before you can become one of my followers? Did they go through an exam? No. Here's what God said to Gideon. Go in the strength you have. How strong was homeboy? He was hiding in a winepress, threshing wheat. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? The I is the Lord. So in other words, what he's saying is do what I've already told you to do in the strength I've already given you. Many of you only hear what your inner me is saying. I can't because God says... You can because I'm God and I've called you, and if I've called you, you better believe I'm going to be with you and I'm going to give you my power. Do you know how many people told me not to start a church in Palestine? Me either, but it was a lot. I didn't keep a, a, you know, a running tally, but there was a lot of people. People said, you can't do it. It'll never happen. You'll be a failure. You won't make it. The average church plant doesn't make it two years. People said, you can't do it, and we're going to pray against you. And so I went to the Lord, and I said, God, with your help, I'll start this church. And then I said, I said Lord, if you allow me to, I want to live and pastor this church until all those other people you've removed. And I wasn't talking about killing them. I just meant go somewhere else. And so some of them have died. Some of them have moved on to be pastors other places. And so far, the Lord is. we could have named this church Ebenezer. You know what Ebenezer means? Thus far, the Lord has helped us. It took us five years to buy our first building. This was our first building. So we were meeting in all kinds of places around town. We bought this building, the house right here, and 2.1 acres. So just the other side of the house was the was the property line. And back here, probably where the first line of, of parking spaces is in the back, that was our property line. And then... Um, God led us a few years later to get out of debt. While we're getting out of debt, Caleb and I were out here mowing the lawn, and the lady next door comes over and says, Hey, I heard you might want to buy my land. And so in the middle of getting out of debt, we buy another 2.5 acres, And we paid cash for it. This was crazy. Um, So we're asking people to tithe, and then we're asking people to give over a three-year span, give over and above the tithe whenever we talk about the bagel offering, building a great life. That's what we're talking about. So people were tithing, giving another 10% in many cases, over and above the tithe, and we were able to pay cash for that land over there. Well, then a few years later, somebody calls me and says, Hey, do you want to buy the 38 acres behind the church? By this time, we're out of debt. And by this time, I was like, Yes, we want to buy that 38 acres. And so um, we paid cash, $69,000 for 38 acres behind. So now we're sitting out here on, on 42 and a half acres as a lighthouse, and, and we're completely debt free. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. People said we couldn't do it. God said, You can do it because I'm with you. Does anybody else think that's kind of cool? I'm not sure anybody's alive in the room. thanks we got the preteens they're clapping they don't even know what i was talking about they just walked in god has given you more than you think you have everything you need to do everything that god wants you to do and i'm going to tell you something 40 years ago i was at youth camp 44 zero i was at youth camp and god just came on my life and 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 so I went forward, right? I'd been saved. I got saved when I was six and I'd been baptized and, and I recommitted to the Lord when I was 18. But I went forward and, and I remember walking out. We were at, at Salem Springs, Arkansas at youth camp and I was sitting under this tree with this guy and he says, why'd you come forward? And I said, I think God's calling me to ministry. He goes, really, are you going to preach? And I said, no, <laughs> you're insane. I'm not going to preach. 40 years ago, I didn't think I would preach. Never thought I would be a pastor. Ten years ago when we went to uh, went to Haiti for the first time, never imagined going to Haiti ten times and Belize a couple of times and now I've been to Israel. I never imagined that two years ago, I get a phone call from Praying Pelican. They said, hey man, would you be on the board of Praying Pelican? It's kind of like Gideon, I'm like, Who are you talking to? And this year, I just got back from the from the spring conference. They elected me chairman of the board. I'm like, who am I? God has put more inside of you than you realize. The president said, "Doug, I want you to. You have a heart for pastors, and you got a heart for the local church, and we want you to, to be ready. We want you to go and, and minister to pastors in, in small countries that. These pastors, they don't have anything. They don't have seminary. They don't have books. They don't. Forty years ago, I never imagined." 2 Peter one three says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, there's two things you need to know about that last phrase, by his own glory and goodness. God will never share his glory with you. And the moment you start thinking it's about you, you will be humbled. You have two choices in being humbled. You're gonna be humbled. You got two choices: either you humble yourself and God lifts you up, or God will humble you. That's the only two, that's the only two options. So when people start having ministries that promote them and their special insight with God, I, I just am like oh, red flag, uh, uh-uh. God will never share his glory with you. He will always share his goodness with you. But it's in our knowledge of him. Some of us don't know him, and so we don't have the power to live a godly life because we don't even know him. Oh, yeah, we gave our hearts to him. We don't spend any time with him. We're like Gideon. He shows up, sits under a tree, and we're like, Hey, Lord, with a lowercase l, when it's really the Lord speaking to you, don't you dare believe what somebody else says about you. Don't you dare believe those negative messages your inner me continues to tell you. God's view of you is all that matters. Don't you insult God by talking about what you don't have and what you're not able to do. God has given you everything you need for a godly life. Third thing you need to know about you, and this is, this kind of ties into that, is it's less about you than you think. Verse 16, it says, The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites, leaving not alive. The Lord said this. It's the second time he stayed because Gideon's not getting it. He's already told him, I'll be with you. He says, I'm going to be with you, and because I'm with you, you're going to do something amazing. Do you know why he chose Gideon, the weakest of the weak? To show his power, because it's always about his power. It's not about you. His power, your obedience. It's way less about you than you think. That's why we have to take our ego, we have to lay it down at the altar and pick up what God says about us. I often feel inadequate as a pastor, and and you need to know this. I am inadequate. The only time I'm effective as a pastor is when I bow down and say, God, I cannot do this. And he goes, you're right. It's not about you. It's about me. Humble people is who God used, not arrogant people. In fact, this is another of my memory verses, but I won't give you my little trick on this one. Isaiah 66 says, these are the ones I look on with favor. Those are, what's that word? God says, you want to be my pet? (laughs) It's not your prayers, it's humble people. Those who are contrite in spirit. Contrite in spirit means you look at somebody like Rahab the the prostitute and you don't think prostitute. You think, God, I need to be careful or, or I could be in the same circumstances she's in. Contrite in spirit says, except for the grace of God, I could be right where they are. And so you don't look down in judgment. You crawl up next to them in encouragement. Humble, contrite in spirit and those who tremble at my word. Can I tell you? (laughs) I don't know many people that tremble at the word of God. It's a suggestion to them. When God wrote this, and by the way, it's finished. My words do not compare to the word of God. My words do not get written down in the word of God. This is finished. And it's God's instruction book. It's how he, he tells us how to live, how we can become godly, all of that stuff. And we don't get to say, you know what? I don't like that and rip that page out. I don't like that, that he says, no adultery. That's a little restrictive. Rip that out. No, you do that, you will be humbled, either in this life or in the next. You have everything you need to do, everything he wants you to do, but not in your power. You need to humble yourself. You need to be contrite in spirit, and you need to tremble at the word of God. So, today, I'm going to ask you whether you do it you know, physically or whether you do it symbolically where you are, I'm going to ask you to kneel down at the altar of God. And, and you, if you want to do it in your chair, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But when you stand up, I'm going to ask you to be the person that God says you are. So, I want you to bow your heads. How many of you would say, I have struggled with feelings of inadequacy? Would you raise your hands? Now, if you're ready to exchange your inadequacy for what God says about you, those of you who raised your hands, I want you to stand up, open your eyes, look at me, and we're going to pray out loud. And, and just so they won't feel, if, if you're, you, know, you want to pray out loud, I want everybody to pray this. God, I confess that I have believed the, eyes of, the lies of your enemy. Today, I want to lay those lies down. I want to pick up who you say I am. I am chosen by God. I am gifted by God to build up the local church. You will never leave me or forsake me. Today I step into my identity as a child of the King. All glory and praise to you. Amen. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that you've called us to do mighty things for your kingdom. Not only have you called us, you said you'd be with us, you said you would equip us, you said the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to your children. Help us to tap into that power today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.